0: Welcome to re oscard the show about Hollywood's biggest night, where we go year by year to figure out what the Academy got right and where they went horribly wrong. This week, we're looking at 2006, and it's our first episode. Mike, how do you feel?
1: I feel very excited to talk about the movies of
0: 2005. Yeah, it's not a terribly controversial year, but...
1: Not a controversial year, but what I discovered when I went back to watch them is um, a very depressing year for movies. Not a lot of uh, feel-good movies that came out in uh, 2005 that were nominated for Oscars, I'll say that much.
0: Yeah, the things that weren't nominated were a little more upbeat, but very depressing Oscars, and maybe that's why Crash won Best Picture, I don't know, Um, but we'll get to that. So, they were just so
1: depressed that they decided to vote for Crash. That, that That's what you're saying? Well, it's Which feel awesome. good, right? It's, it, hey, we ended racism with this movie. So. <laughs> yeah, right. And the movie itself does not feel good, but you're right. It, it, it could make, make them feel good about themselves. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. I think so. So just looking over
0: some of the people nominated for the, the Oscars that year and uh, Clooney really, you know, dominating.
1: He had a good year. He really had a good year. And the truth is both of the movies that he did or worked on were excellent movies. And uh, yeah. And he, and he very much was putting his feelings out there in his work, which is interesting as well. Yeah. And he was making specific statements about things. And both of those movies had messages, so to speak, even though they claim they don't, but of course they did. And uh, that definitely was him using his clout to kind of make Movies with the messages that he wanted out there.
0: Yeah, it it actually was a year for a lot of messages, and and uh, you know it was the second year I think that Participant Media was around, and I don't know if you know them, but they're a production company that kind of is like message based. So they did things like An Inconvenient Truth, they did Suriana, Good Night and Good Luck. Um, and just a lot of things like that. And this was their second year, but they they really kind of dominated the Oscars um, with Good Night and Good Luck, uh, Suriana, they did "Murder Ball," the documentary about the uh, wheelchair sports. Um, yeah,
1: excellent movie. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not yeah. know
0: that. So they kind of came out of the gate swinging, which was awesome. And yeah, and interestingly... <laughs> In addition to Participant, something I found was that uh, Good Night
1: and Good Luck was also produced by Mark Cuban. That is true. I noticed that as well. And it yeah. Uh, be, uh, set off some bells for me. I'm, and I was trying to think, what else did Mark Cuban actually end up producing? After Good Night and Good Luck, I'm not aware.
0: You know, I uh, the only other thing I saw was that he did uh, Enron, the smartest guys in the room. So yeah,
1: he, he, he was involved in two excellent movies for that year that is interesting yeah
0: yeah and it was like two and out that was the last thing that i saw that he did so that's uh yeah interesting but yeah, um, I
1: guess I, he decided to sink all of his money into the mavericks he didn't have any additional money to spend on anything else that, that, that may be what happened.
0: yeah well th- that's interesting because this was a year of pretty great films but the, none of them made a lot of money
1: it seems like yeah, and that's a, definitely a big picture thing that we're going to get into. As the more that we do of these, that once we get into the two thousands, that break between movies that are nominated and movies that people actually go to see just starts to diverge in a huge way. Uh, yeah. The movie that made the most money out of the Oscar nominees ended up being Walk the Line. That that yeah. is actually the made the most money, and that only made like fifty something million dollars. So. And that ended up being the most feel-good of all the movies if you think about it, really. Um, yeah, I mean, depressing and still felt good. <laughs> yeah, but at the end it all turned out okay. But yeah, so that ended up being probably the most uplifting of all of those movies, which may be why it's the only one that made a decent amount of money, I, I, I don't know. But uh, but yes, yeah, Good it, Night and Good Luck made the least amount in case you were wondering, because uh, I just don't think people want to go see black and white movies about the news See, I'm gonna have a hot take on that later because that movie. You probably is agree. I amazing. I love that movie. I loved it, but I could obviously see why people did not go see it. I mean, you and I are movie people, and we're gonna love that movie. Yeah. But I, I get, I can't. I guess I can't argue with people not going to see it. So I, I could understand.
0: Yeah. It, well, there are a lot of movies like that this year. I think with, you know, everybody just went to see Crash. I guess. But that didn't even <laughs> yeah. make a lot of money, so yeah, no I don't know. It's a confusing year. Not only controversial in the sense that I don't understand <laughs> how most of these things happen financially and and critically. So uh, very strange. But maybe we can just dive into it now. Um, why don't we go down? Who actually won? So oh, we should explain that. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the above the fold awards, uh, best actor, best actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, director and best picture, uh, and kind of get our takes on it and see you know, if we agree or what we think should have won instead and why. And um, so why don't we start with best supporting actor, which was George Clooney for Syriana.
1: The easiest take on that one is No, he did not deserve the win. And the reason he didn't deserve a win is because if you happen to watch the DVD of Siriana and then in the special features, there's actually an interview with George Clooney. Mm -hmm. And more than once, George Clooney says that this is not a movie for actors showcasing themselves. He says more than once that the star of Siriana is the screenplay and that the actors wanted to be involved in it because the screenplay was so good. He said it was a pure ensemble, and that it was really about the script. And you know what? George Clooney is 100% right. I, I <laughs> give him credit. He is totally right, and he did not deserve to win, because if, as you're watching the movie, when you think of a best supporting actor or actress, you think about someone who has a supporting role but stands out, like the person kind of, when they're on the screen, they're the person that holds you, they hold your attention, you're riveted by them. That's really what it's for. Scene-stealers is kind of someone that holds the movie together. And he was fine. I mean, he actually was really good in this movie. It was the most un-George Clooney-like part I've seen him play. There was zero smirking, which I'm sure was very (laughs) difficult for him. Yeah. Pulled it off amazingly well. He was excellent in the movie. But when he wasn't on screen, I wasn't thinking, wow, I wonder where that character is. I just didn't find myself like wishing that he would show up more or feeling like he was any more important than anybody else that was in the movie. So I think he was right, and it was an ensemble piece, and no one actor should have been singled out for that movie,
0: yeah, it well, it's interesting the the screenplay was written by the director Stephen Gagan, who also wrote uh traffic um might have won an Oscar for that, I think, and you know, this reminded me so much of traffic. It was just like uh it was actually <laughs> it was similar to crash in that. It was just all of these stories, kind of. I guess they didn't come together as much, and they weren't overtly trying to hammer a message home. But uh, just in this ensemble, and and uh, yeah, and Clooney. I mean, he kind of stood out, though. I
1: think. I mean, he stood out because he was the only one that was tortured. So I mean, that stood out. <laughs> but but he I mean, he twenty himself, I don't know. I guess like I, I never thought when he wasn't on screen. Like, boy, I really wish I was seeing more George Clooney right now, just because. Everyone else was pretty excellent. And, and the thing that I think is most interesting is that uh, William Hurt is also in Syriana and only shares scenes with George Clooney yeah, because he's a friend of his and they only share scenes together. And so William Hurt must have known that George Clooney did not deserve Best Supporting Actor that he did. And that's who I actually think deserved to win.
0: Well, sure scene, but... we'll get to that. Um... Yeah. Also in uh, on the Clooney uh side was uh, Tom McCarthy is in this, uh also in Good night and Good Luck. so That's right. Clooney uh, you know, Clooney doubling up this year and and bringing people with him. but his his character is, which I'm sure you probably know, is based on Bob Bear, who wrote the co-wrote the screenplay or wrote the book that the screenplay was based on. so, you know what What a nice thing for bob bear to have george clooney play you in a movie um but he gained all this weight and i think that's you know if you gain or lose weight you're going to win an oscar that's
1: right um, you know they love the weight gain yeah and yeah. plus i mean i'm sure everyone at least in the academy was aware that uh george clooney almost died making syriana uh had right. a serious injury and he actually supposedly still deals with pain from uh this particular incident that happened in the movie, so right. it's very possible that between the weight gain and the goodwill of George Clooney almost dying, they, they just felt like he deserved something, and I, mean, I can't really argue with that. It's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't go to Matt over over it, and and uh, it's perfectly fine for George Clooney to get an award, but but no, I, I just I don't see anything in that role that made me think that he deserved a win. Did he deserve it more than Matt Dillon? Yeah, probably.
0: <laughs> oh boy do we have some things to say about Matt Dillon <laughs> um, all right so best supporting actress we have Rachel Weiss, the constant gardener what do you think i will let you go on that one you know I saw it when it was in the theaters it didn't stick with me uh that's about all I can say about it I didn't revisit it for this because I had 30 films to watch and just like when I saw it in the theater, it didn't jump out at me, so
1: I passed. So, I watched it. I still think the movie was fine. Yeah. Uh, I think she's a magnetic actress, actually. I mean, I, I really like her work. But, I mean, I didn't. there wasn't anything particularly that really stood out to me in, in, in this movie. Uh, it might have been honestly that she been brought down by just the kind of overall dullness of the movie itself. Yeah. Uh, so maybe the movie did her a disservice, but but yeah, I, I wasn't particularly moved. Where I feel like she had a win, it didn't feel like a, a guarantee. I mean, honestly, probably anyone in this category could have won. I would have been perfectly happy with it. So
0: best actor. This is a this is a really good one, and I think this is probably the closest one to call. Uh, of everything, in my opinion. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Capote, the best. He He's the best. I, my favorite actor of all time. And I was so happy to see him win an Oscar. So well-deserved. But it, it was really neck and neck with Joaquin Phoenix, I think. And uh, boy, just both such good performances. Both biopics could go either way in the Academy.
1: But did Philip Seymour really pull off playing 5-2? I mean, that, of course, is the question. They So some tricks that they did okay. is they movie gave magic. him really,
0: really tight shoulders on his suits to make his head look bigger. And then they also put, they cast really tall people around him and put them on Apple boxes so he would look tiny. So a little bit of movie magic in there to get him to look that way and uh
1: I think the reverse
0: alone is what you're saying. That's right. Everybody else is on an Apple box. Yeah. All right. Okay. (laughs) Um, But boy, just that race between him and Joaquin, because, you know, there was so much talk around Joaquin just embodying Johnny Cash as well and and singing the
1: music and just uh, any other year he would have won, I think. We know that the Academy loves biopic actors they, they love that yeah. and they also really love someone creating a singer i mean they love that that's the other thing they love obviously yeah. uh which we've seen over the years so yeah. you're right if anyone other than Philip humer hoffman was uh not up for that role not up for that award i'm sure joaquin phoenix would have won i agree
0: Yeah. yep yeah. Uh, and then Best Actress, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, she did win for Walk the Line. Well-deserved. I, you know, I I don't think there
1: was any real competition there, in my opinion. No, I agree with you. And, and that's the thing. I, I think her doing her own singing and all of that certainly pushes her over the top, which is what then brings you back to why you feel like Joaquin Phoenix could have easily won, but didn't. Uh, similar criteria, it's just that he had stiffer competition than she did. That's the best part Reese Witherspoon was ever going to play and probably will ever play since now she runs an empire and a book club and all of that. Yeah. So I'm not even sure <laughs> what her acting is anymore. But yeah, that, that was the best thing she was ever going to do. So it seems pretty well deserved that she won.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you sing your own songs, and it's a biopic. Going to win. So Best Director, Ang Lee, Brokeback Mountain, uh, this is kind of up in the air, I think. Clooney could have been in the running a little more. I know you're a, a Munich guy, but I think this could have gone either way. You know, what
1: do you think? I mean, the reason I don't have a problem with it is because I mean, Ang Lee was actually the first non white winner of the category ever. Yeah. And so I feel like since you kind of knew that Brokeback Mountain was going to get screwed out of best picture if they were going to give an award why not give it to Ang Lee? and so I appreciate the representation and obviously he's a great director and I don't have a problem with that Uh, but it does almost feel like a consolation award so to speak just because Brokeback was not going to win whereas it probably should have so it, I, I can't help but shake the feeling that it's like a consolation prize Oscar but I mean to him obviously not and well deserved and it's nice to break up the uh, the White Man's Club to to, to to give the award to Ang Lee, so I'm I'm all about that. It's fine by me, uh, but I don't think that was necessarily his best work. And obviously, he won again down the road for Life of Pi, which is which was truly amazing. Yeah. You know, that's always the, the question about these kinds of movies: is like, is it a screenplay movie? Is it a director movie? Right. And Brokeback felt a little more like a screenplay movie. It was just mm-hmm. there on the page, uh, obviously based on the book. So, yeah, it's fine, and clearly I have no issue with Ang Lee winning, but you know my feeling and probably where I would have moved on this one.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that, you know, a lot of times you're going to see the director and the best picture be for the same thing, and that, that just makes Crash stand out even more to me. Right, As, and it makes you realize that
1: that was definitely a a, a strange Oscars. That that after Ang Lee won, most people would have assumed that that broke back would win.
0: Uh, but he did not, and you know, there we go, crash, best picture. Where are yeah, we? Really happened.
1: It happened. It happened. We we were, we were actually alive to see it.
0: It's shocking. It I I started to rewatch this the other day, and I had to turn it off because. <laughs> it felt so heavy-handed to me like a, uh like a 90210 episode or something where the moral of the story is just so overt and also you know LA is a sprawling place so for these people to keep running into one another is kind of shocking like it doesn't generally happen but it was it was tough it was tough to get through and and I didn't <laughs> the second time so I can't understand it. I really can't. You
1: get the impression that throughout that whole movie, the actors were acting and he would stop filming and just say, look, it's too subtle. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I need more. I need more from you. I need to feel it. How is and Nicolas so- Cage not in this movie? Yeah. I mean, I think that was where he went wrong. If he wanted it to be that high, he needed Nicolas Cage. He needed Nicolas Cage. He needed like Robert Loggia. He needed... <laughs> He needed people. They they bring it all the time because yeah. that's clearly what he was looking for. He kept because everyone seems to be dialed to eleven. Even Sandra Bullock, just you know, was getting she to an was, uncomfortable place of eleven in that movie. Where I don't think I'm not too sure how comfortable she felt in in that range. But there yeah. it was. She was the most over
0: the top. I think it, it was so obvious, and the racism was just everything and. I don't want to pick it apart, but there were just so many things that I don't understand. <laughs> and I don't understand how everybody embraced this. Apparently, they all went on Oprah, and she was just in love with this film and shared her own crash moment. So it really spoke to her. But I think maybe the Oprah bump kind of gave it its thing. I don't know.
1: But I certainly true. We've learned a few things about Oprah over the years that she has power to move uh people to see things and also that she doesn't always have great taste. I mean, you know, she did promote <laughs> Dr. Phil and uh yeah. Dr. Oz. So I mean, you know, she's not she's not she's not a thousand.
0: But it, i I just yeah I'm still so I suppose it's good to talk about why we think this won and maybe say Broke Back Mountain didn't win because I think that's kind of the thing that
1: yeah it's definitely think, the elephant in the room where yeah. going back to 2006 now. And nowadays, it wouldn't, in my mind, it wouldn't even have been a question right. that Black Mountain would win. But at that time, while they were willing to give acting awards for gay characters and you know promote movies in that way, there had yet to really be a movie that centered on gay characters that had won Best Picture. And after 2006, there still wasn't. Yeah. So it just felt very much like while Hollywood loves to pat itself on the back for its progressiveness, it, the Academy is still a lot of old members, <laughs> still a lot of old members in the Academy. And I think they just weren't ready yet to go there. And so they went with the second way to pat themselves on the back, which was to uh, solve racism. And so they they decided to go with that one instead. That's what's so funny about it. It's like, oh, we're, we're
0: being this inclusive community by promoting Crash but we're completely freezing out this other community that we're not ready to discuss yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, Slow progress. We're just kind of like, a, it's not your time yet. Uh, we're just yeah. gonna go this way.
0: One thing at a time, I guess, for Hollywood. Right. Um, yeah, so so those are the categories that we're gonna, t- well, we have been talking about this week. And I think before we get into our own picks, Why don't we just look at a few other things that came out that year that we think maybe not necessarily winning Oscars, but there are some good things out there that probably could have gotten a little closer to the fold than they did.
1: A lot of good movies that year, a lot of comedies. Yeah, I mean, two huge comedies that came out that year that kind of were seminal comedies that kind of set the template going forward. I mean, The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Wedding Crashers. Yeah which kind of both set a template that was just driven into the ground over the next decade. But uh, I mean, that was Judd Apatow's first, 40-year-old version was Judd Apatow's first shot at that. And uh, that was that was a pretty big deal and, and, and allowed him to kind of uh, become a pretty huge director after that.
0: Yeah, I think if the Academy was a little more interested in comedy, that could have been in the discussion a little more. I mean, and it was like you said. It
1: set the template, and and I think yeah, the temple of raunchy comedies with heart. I mean, that's kind of like that's the template. You want to boil it down to a simple formula. That's really what it is. It's yeah, a raunchy movie that has it's really a subtle movie about heart. Uh, yeah. that, that 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 has a heart of gold, and that and that's how it works. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Red, Wedding Crashers is, is kind of not that. It's just following jerks. Being jerky but for some reason you enjoy them well vince vaughn at his funniest honestly yeah
0: he's something else i watched uh going off on a tangent but i watched uh clay pigeons the other day from 1998 with him and joaquin phoenix and uh he is straight out of swingers and he's just trent from swingers I, i think that's all we could play at that point And it it was so over the top. So watching that and then watching Wedding Crashers right after it is like, you just see him get older, but be kind of the same guy, which was uh, (laughs) really all you want in Hollywood, I guess, if you want to keep it. I mean, in his
1: defense, when he has stepped out of that zone, it hasn't always gone well for him. So I get it. But I mean, for me, Wedding Crashers, the most important part of Wedding Crashers, I mean, now in hindsight, of course, is Bradley Cooper just playing a super jerk in that movie and he was really good at it so history of violence came out in
0: 2005 amazing film which i watched this morning and it is outstanding it was nice to see david cronenberg come back because i miss the body horror which he manages to get in
1: brick came out that year i mean brick obviously is an Pretty important movie. I mean, to both of us. I mean, not only was yeah. it a great movie, of but that was Ryan Johnson's first movie, who now everybody knows from Knives Out. Yeah. But that was his first film. It's like a Neo-Noir film, which is truly excellent. And Joseph Gordon Levitt is really good in it. I yeah. mean, after after Third Rock from the Sun, I mean he went on to do some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And Rick is definitely one of those things. Absolutely um
0: just a couple other things that came out that year maybe not oscar worthy but v for vendetta which was the wachowski's follow-up to the matrix
1: interesting to see elizabeth town cameron crow yes i've got, I got thoughts on elizabeth town yeah which is i mean that was kind of the beginning of the end for cameron crow <laughs> had a lot of success and for some reason that movie just it just stopped him cold. For some reason, people just rejected it wholeheartedly. It just felt like he went to the well too many times of that of the Cameron Crowe movie. Right. And then after that, it's kind of like he was done. If you think about it, I mean, he really's only directed a couple of movies since then. Yeah. And one of them was We Bought a Zoo, I mean, a family film, but he very much moved away from making Cameron Crowe movies. But then he tried to make... Roadies, which was a way of a showtime show that was trying to recapture a bit of almost famous magic and that failed. Yeah. And just like it's just interesting when you see someone who has so much success at doing something and then just watch it completely dry up. And and it happens and it seems to have happened to him, and he just never got it back.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it happens all the time. Um, somebody who did get it back is Robert Downey Jr., who was in Good Night and Good Luck. Um, he's also in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which
1: came out that year, uh, which is kind of my sleeper pick for uh, one of my favorite movies of that year. I mean, I'm I'm a big Shane Black fan, yeah, and that was just really enjoyable.
0: Yeah, set the set the tone for Iron Man,
1: I suppose. So, so that's interesting. We mentioned this. there's a couple of things that happened in 2005 that kind of end up playing to the whole Iron Man. Story, which ends up coming out like three years later, maybe two thousand eight, I believe. Yeah. One of the most important things is there's a movie that came out in two thousand five called Zathura, which many people have not seen. Right. I think it's on Netflix now. Anybody wants to go see it? But directed by John Favreau. So you, so if you see Iron Man, and you kind of see what John Favreau has ended up doing since then, and you're like, well, yeah, I remember him doing Swingers. It's like, how did he end up getting to Iron Man? Zathura is kind of like the key to that, Where Zathura is a story about two brothers. Uh, it's about a game that they play, but it, it's kind of a science fiction movie. takes place, ends up taking place in space. Mm-hmm. A lot of action and adventure in it. So very different in terms of what you were used to seeing him do in the past. And so right. that movie, I think, kind of opened up what he showed that he was able to do. And so in a way, like without Sathura, I don't think he gets to Iron Man. So you kind of see a few of the things drop there that end up getting him to where he needs to go to make Iron Man.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, and obviously 2005 has Robert Downey Jr. finally coming back after a lot of years in the wilderness, which we don't need to get into. We all know kind of what happened to Robert Downey Jr. Uh, you know, Makes two movies, starts his comeback trail, and that's kind of how he ends up getting there. The thing I find really interesting is that Crash has both Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle in it. Yeah. Obviously, Terrence Howard plays Captain Rhodes in Iron Man and then loses that job to Don Cheadle. Right. Takes it over the second one and ends up following it all the way through being War Machine and all that. Uh, yeah. So I just think that's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, he got locked in. He, he got stuck in the Marvel machine. Yeah. I don't know what year Doolittle came out um,
1: for Robert Downey Jr. I was actually, actually a couple of years ago. I think it was like, yeah, that that wasn't that many years ago. And yeah, that's where Stephen Gagan ended up, which is depressing on many, many, many levels. Exactly. Um,
0: but I I heard something with Robert Downey Jr. the other day where he said uh, the two most important films that he's ever done. One of them was Doolittle, and I can't remember why, and I, I can't for the life of me figure out why that would even be. Um, but the second one was The Shaggy Dog, which came out in 2006, so the year after this. Are you and sure he, this wasn't an Onion story? No. Well, here's why he said that, because he had done these few films you know, in the years prior to this, but 2006 made – him insurable because disney banked on him so he had disney behind him and that just set him up for what was next to come and yeah so getting that nod from disney even though he had done you know good night and good luck kiss kiss bang bang uh it was the shaggy dog that that really got
1: him back on that trajectory That's interesting and and of course now that we were talking about it i mean the shane black connection with robert johnny jr where obviously he puts him in kiss kiss bang bang kind of helps him come back that was his first real movie uh that someone took a chance on him again because they had been friendly and then robert johnny jr returns the favor by letting shane black write and direct iron man 3 so it all kind of comes around and somehow all roads lead to iron man for some reason but that that is just kind of uh where we are 2005 just lays all the groundwork for iron man
0: yeah, so it's it was inevitable, just like Thanos.
1: was inevitable. So a couple of things, a couple more things that I, I just have to mention about 2005. Yeah. Just real quick. If we're just throwing things out there. I mean, Sahara came out in 2005, which was uh, <laughs> people trying to make Matthew McConaughey, Indiana Jones, and that failed miserably. Uh, Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005, which was the highest gross in 2005. Right. So we'll just leave that without comment. We'll go see Star Wars, whatever you think of that one. Uh, that is my son's favorite Star Wars movie, according to him. Don't trust his taste in movies, so we're not gonna get into that. So Batman Begins also came out in 2005. Right. So I mean, starts Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Sin City came out, which was, you know, it was a, it was a big swing. I mean, kind of trying to literally recreate a comic book in cinema form, uh, which I support as a comic book kid. I mean, I was looking forward to that, and I genuinely hated that movie. I just thought that it didn't work in any way. Last note for me, the movies that interested me in 2005, well, besides King Kong being ridiculous and insane, that Peter Jackson thought that King Kong could get the Lord of the Rings treatment where no one wants to see a three-hour King Kong with Jack Black. Nobody wants to see that. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is kind of one of my sleeper picks of 2005. Yep, just really liked everything about that movie. And I think uh, because I just really thought it was Brad Pitt at his most charming, uh, it used Vince Vaughn as his Vince vaughn And it worked. He was really good in that part. He, he was like
0: the- if the Wedding Crashers guy couldn't get a date.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. So... <laughs> I mean, he was just... They used him perfectly in that. So... Yeah. And I think Angelina Jolie was really good in that movie. And I mean, my I think my favorite role of hers for me was Salt. Do you know who was originally supposed to be in Salt? In Salt? No, I don't.
0: Tom Cruise. Really? It was originally for him, yeah. Didn't that, want to do it or couldn't
1: do it, yeah. Well, that actually makes a little bit of sense because, uh, you know, Doug Liman and Tom Cruise end up having... A bit of a relationship after that where they made Edge of Tomorrow Together and they made American made So that's interesting. So so I guess they wanted to work together then it fell apart, but they ended up coming back together down the road. Yeah. And now they're in space. Yes. And I mean and Doug Lyman's made some pretty good movies. And you know, for you, as I'm sure you know, he's now working on a remake of Roothouse. So uh I believe that is his movie the remake of Roadhouse with Jake all. Yeah. Some things you can't touch. They're sacred. And Roadhouse is one of them, in my opinion.
0: So,
1: yeah. Lyman made Go, which I thought was a really good movie. I just liked most of his work. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith is no different. I thought it was really yep. enjoyable. Uh, we all know about the tabloid stuff. We went on with that, but I don't really care about any of that. I just thought no. it was a fun movie. And and I enjoyed watching uh, Brad Pitt be suave and cool. I, I enjoyed it. Let's move on to
0: our picks.
1: All right, for Best Supporting Actor, what do you got? For Best Supporting Actor, I think I hinted at this. I mean, I think William Hurt was truly great in History of Violence. I, I, and that's what I mean by a supporting character. Yeah. I mean, when he was on screen, he just dominated the movie. You know, even though Viggo is a great actor, and he was really good in that movie. But it just felt like you were drawn to William Hurt by all the metrics of what a Best Supporting Actor is, he wins, as far as I'm concerned. I agree.
0: Just watched it today. And, I mean, he's on screen for, what, like less time than Beatrice Strait and Network? That only speaks to how good
1: he really was, because you, when you think of the movie, you think of him and feel like he was in it more when he really wasn't. There's a lot of Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men vibe going on there, where it's like, you don't have to be on screen that long to dominate a movie. And and he he really made his time count. And on a side note, just to say, if you're talking about screen time as well, I mean, in truth, George Clooney doesn't have a ton of screen time in Siriana if you break it down. he Maybe it's like 30 minutes
0: of screen time in that movie. I was going to say that watching uh, Siriana last night, you you kind of see the two sides of William Hurt. Just watching him back to back, the guy's amazing, so versatile, so cool. Should have
1: won this for sure. Second, I probably if Paul Giamatti won, I would not have been upset. But I know <laughs> that's kind of just like a stock character, the gruff trainer. I mean, but anytime you come even close to Burgess Meredith and Rocky, <laughs> I'm clearly gonna, I'm, I'm clearly gonna go there. I mean, you won me over. That's just, that's just a me thing. So. I understand that everyone may not agree, but he has some good Mickey energy going on in that movie. And I was I was all for it.
0: He kind of always has Mickey energy now that I think about that it. That is true. You're right.
1: <laughs> when you think about it, he definitely has Mickey energy going on most of the time. All right. Best supporting actress. So th- this may be uh colored by years later and how I feel about it. But uh, i do believe that amy adams is a national treasure <laughs> and i think she was really wonderful in that movie it was her debut performance and kind of like leonardo dicaprio i kind of wish she won the oscar then just so we could stop talking about amy adams and you know what an oscar would have been <laughs> nice to just get that out of the way yeah i would have appreciated that because now she's just working really hard trying to trying to chase oscars but um but she really was. i mean she's the only reason that movie was I mean, really watchable. I mean, if you think, it was a fine movie. A lot of movies like it, you know, a and simple- Junebug is, is the film. Yeah. Sorry, we're talking about Junebug, which was a simple little indie movie, perfectly pleasant to watch, uh, but would probably be forgettable if you weren't thinking about her because she just had such a such an energy and just kind of came off the screen Uh, and and you did this likeability that that just kind of stays with you and I mean that to me is is, as I said everything about a supporting part it's like when you think about the movie you only think of her and you just find yourself liking her character and liking her subsequently you know because they're almost intertwined close second is probably Michelle Williams and I would not have been in any way upset if she won Mm. because I mean clearly Brokeback Mountain is about uh, the two male leads, but she carries the pain in that movie. I mean, she wears it and just kind of—I mean, to me—is is really the heart of that. I mean, you feel the heartbreak in yeah. that movie
0: almost through her eyes. Right. So interesting. She she's one of my favorites now. Um, but I remember seeing her on Dawson's Creek, and she just drove me crazy. I don't know what it was about her, but. I don't know if she, I didn't think she was
1: a good actress or what it was, but I I almost couldn't watch because of her. Well, I mean, if you think about it now, in hindsight, maybe what it was, was much like Harrison Ford just couldn't do uh, George Lucas's dialogue in Star Wars. (laughs) Maybe she was just like, I don't know how to sell this stuff. And she was just trying really hard to be what they needed her to be. And she was just too good for it. Could and be. so she ended up seeming like a terrible actress because she just couldn't sell Dawson's Creek dialogue. Yeah.
0: That that could be the case. Uh so for this one I went with Katherine Keener just because I love Katherine Keener. I think she's great in everything and a, and as a Harper Lee just uh you know kind of the conscience of Truman Capote in this film and and the voice of reason and she's not on screen a lot, but I just love what she brings to every scene. And I'm glad she was nominated. I would have loved to have seen her
1: one. Yeah. I I really like her work as well. I think the the, the thing about Capote, of course, it's so fascinating is that it's one of the rare instances in music. You, especially back in the day in the fifties and sixties, you got a lot of remakes where someone would come out and then someone would make a remake of that song. And there'd be two versions of it kind of in the marketplace at the same time. right? Uh, you heard it through The Grapevine being a good example. But I mean, of course, back in the 50s, Little Richard Songs and uh, Ready Teddy. And we won't talk about Pat Boone. But they, they're, they're, there was a lot of that back in the day, especially Motown as well. They give songs to artists. But in yeah. this case, when I mean, we have two movies that come out back to back in back to back years, we have Capote and we have Infamous. Right. It's essentially the same story with completely different actors. And it's just kind of a fascinating thing that rarely happens where you get to just compare apples to apples. Yeah. So you think Catherine Keener and remember Sandra Bullock plays that role in Infamous. Right. And I actually think Sandra Bullock was pretty good in that part. But yeah, I mean, Catherine Keener is just better. All right. Uh, So
0: best actor. Um, I think they got it right. And I will say that every time Phil is nominated for anything. Uh, yeah. Like I said before, it was it was uh, neck and neck with Joaquin in this category, but Phil just he's just so good. He's so good all the time, and not that Joaquin isn't. He's he's the best too. And it's a little surprising because of the singing and the biopic part of it, but
1: I think Phil just outacted him. Yeah, and as we were just talking about, I mean Toby Jones obviously plays Truman Capote in Infamous. And he's really good in it, honestly. And more to he scale. Has, uh, and he, yeah, he's certainly more to scale. That's, that's correct. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate, I think, that his portrayal of Truman Capote gets overlooked because Capote was first and Philip Seymour Hoffman was so good in it. That part just ends up getting lost, which is a shame. Uh, I think more people should see it and appreciate it, even though it's not Philip Seymour Hoffman and he was truly magnetic and that's the thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman where it's like it's all the little things, all the little choices that he makes and, and the, the subtle ways that he does things that makes him really great. But I would say that that uh, Toby Jones's portrayal of Truman Capote is kind of underrated because Philip Seymour Hoffman's portrayal was so good in dominating. Right. So and I those- think he
0: was so comfortable. I mean, he had uh, he and the director Bennett Miller had like gone to acting school together or something when they were very young, so they had this this whole uh, relationship for a long time and and I kind of love the idea of two buddies just
1: making a movie and you can tell... Yeah, although, comfort- although when two buddies make a movie, uh, you'd think they would make a less depressing movie. So, I I, I have to say when we're talking about Joaquin Phoenix uh, deserving to win in any other year, but I really do want to mention Hustle and Flow and Terrence Howard because... Hustle & Flow has no business working. It, it, it doesn't. I mean, you look at it on paper and you see it and you're just like, there's no reason this movie should be watchable. Right. And it was very watchable. And I think a lot of that actually has to do with Terrence Howard, who somehow plays a role that should be contemptible and makes it work. And, and you find yourself rooting for him. And it, it's it's very effective. Uh, I, I, I think he deserves credit for that. And yeah. uh, I just kind of want to mention that. I don't necessarily think he deserved to win, but I do think he was really good in that role. And and I will just say that based off of that and what ends up happening with his career, uh, he must have made some people very, very angry because uh, <laughs> based on 2005, I mean, you would have kind of expected bigger things from him that just kind of ended up not happening. Uh, the interesting thing to me is that Terrence Howard and Ludacris are in two Oscar-nominated movies of 2005. They're both in Crash, and they're both in Hustle and Flow, right? which I find fascinating. Uh, and I was going to say make a thing about how uh, Ludacris ended up having a better movie career than Terrence Howard, which no one would have seen coming. But I can't. I would be lying. I mean, <laughs> Ludacris only made Fast and Furious movies. He really hasn't done much. That's but more prolific has Terrence Howard. And uh, ended up steering in a TV and being an empire for quite a few years, right? Uh, which ludicrous also appeared in one episode. Just to be clear, wow, so these two Their the paths are constantly crossing. Okay, best director. Well, this this will keep coming up that that I have a, a, a deep love of Spielberg, okay. and I I truly think Steven Spielberg's work in Munich was was great. What makes Spielberg great? is his ability to adapt to the movie that he's making and kind of disappear behind it. He, he can change the tone, he can change his own tone. He can work in a bunch of different genres and you never really feel his hand. He's not really heavy handed in what he's doing, at least hmm. in my opinion. I mean, early on, sure. But as he's gotten older and more assured. Uh, and I think that Munich is a really good example of him making certain choices that are effective but really letting the movie breathe. Mm-hmm. And I know part of that's the screenplay, but I mean, the violence is very shocking and it's very brutal. So, I mean, it's not sanitized in any way. Uh, the way that it's filmed almost Verite style, uh, almost documentary style, is it's very effective uh, where you feel like you're, you're very much in the rooms and, and you feel a part of it. Uh, I just think that's really effective work. And I just think that this continues his ability as he gets older, just to be really good at what he does and 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 make all the right choices and let the movie breathe. And I think that while Munich wasn't the best movie of the year by far, uh, it was very effective. And I think it was very effective because Spielberg knows what he's doing.
0: Right. That's interesting. I have a almost the opposite opinion of Spielberg <laughs> in that I, know I feel you mean- I can see like amblin in everything he does there's there's a tone no matter what the subject is and maybe it's the music like maybe it's that happy amblin music but i feel like there's even if it's a dark film there's some kind of like happiness to it when he's directing munich is the exception to that i feel like i don't see him in it and therefore i'm actually more interested in it than most spielberg movies but um Yeah, I I see what you're saying with this one in particular, because it it feels almost not Spielbergian, but...
1: Right, and when you compare it to the fact that he also made War of the Worlds in the same year, yeah. and I agree with you in that, where that's one where you can feel him a little bit more. Yeah. So that was, I think it's almost like one for him and one for them, where he made (laughs) War of the Worlds very much a style that you will recognize as feeling like a Spielberg movie, where Munich really does not feel that way.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it is about him. I, I recognize that he's amazing, and and the you know the fingerprint he's put on film is
1: undeniable. But you know he's not for me. We we are going to continue to have this argument throughout subsequent episodes. I know. It's, so I, it's we'll start it here. We are diverging on the Spielberg train, and that's totally fair. Fair enough. Uh, we discussed Paul Higges. I I think. We'll talk about it when we get to to Crash, obviously. But him being nominated for Best Director, I find truly hysterical. Because (laughs) as you're watching Crash, Paul Haggis also wrote Million Dollar Beat. Right. Before, which won Best Picture, directed by Clint Eastwood. And as I was watching Crash, all I could think of was what would Crash be if it was directed by Clint Eastwood instead of Paul Haggis? And would it have been more effective if a director who went out of his way to be subtle was making that movie, as opposed to Paul Haggis, who seemed to take the spinal tap approach to directing. where Everything was at 11. And it just made me think, I think Paul Haggis is a much better screenwriter than he is a director. So for them to give him a nomination for directing, I found pretty laughable. Yeah,
0: I think it was kind of, uh... I don't know, honorary, not honorary, but just. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, you get
1: all the nominations and it's rare that they won't give them all to you if you're getting all the top nominations.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, so so who do you think would have, would
1: have gotten it instead? Craig Brewer for Hustle and Flow? I mean, if they had put him in that instead of Paul, I guess I would have been perfectly happy with that. Because again, Crash was a movie that might have worked if someone else had directed it, where Hustle & Flow was a movie that might honestly have been unwatchable if the people that were involved in it were not involved in it. I mean, it could have gone off the rails so fast. So I yeah, I almost think that in some ways he should have been recognized for keeping that uh, jalopy on fire on the tracks and making it <laughs> an, actually, an entertaining movie.
0: I think if I had to replace him, maybe uh, maybe Nolan for Batman Begins. I think that would have been uh, a good pick to put in there.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm getting arguments from me about Nolan as a good director, but Batman Begins is honestly one of my least favorite Nolan movies. And mm-hmm. part of that is because uh I'm a bit of a Batman nerd, read a lot of Batman comics when I was a kid, and I just didn't like much about the tone or the story. I, I wasn't I just didn't love much about Batman Begins, to be right. honest. But yeah, he's a good director and and he did a good job. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily argue with it, but I just didn't love it in general.
0: Yeah. So my pick for this would be George Clooney for good night and good luck. Um, A phenomenal film. I I just watched it again and I, I just think there's so much going on in it. And, and I was wondering if maybe I don't kind of relate it to today because it feels like it would fit very well in 2023 just like it did back then when I was watching the footage of Joseph McCarthy I kept thinking man it's it's just Ted Cruz like this whole thing is just nonsense like this guy trying to make a name for himself and and digging his heels in and it's absurd but I just think you know overall and and maybe I'm kind of tipping my hand here for best picture but uh I thought Clooney did a great job on this and I think everybody in it uh well directed well made just uh Clooney's a good director
1: yeah i think that Clooney doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves as a writer director because his first two movies were truly great yeah Uh, professions of a dangerous mind is one of was one of my favorite movies of that year and good night and good luck was one of my favorite movies of 2005 i i think that he's um yeah, I mean, unlike his persona <laughs> and his, his acting, where you kind of always feel like George Clooney's being George Clooney, he's got that way about him. But his directing, he very much kind of gets behind there and doesn't make a mess and is really good at kind of letting people do what they do. Yeah. Uh, As director, he makes uh, good choices to stay out of the way. And, I wonder I how think- much
0: his relationship with Steven Soderbergh was uh, influential in his directing because they've made a lot of movies together. And uh, I don't know that the style is necessarily the same, but I think I can feel like the
1: DNA there a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I I think uh, it certainly can't hurt working with Soderbergh a lot. Yeah.
0: (laughs) He definitely knows what he's doing. Um, All right. So we'll move on to best picture.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure I tipped my hand before, but... I mean, I just think that Brokeback Mountain is deserving of Best Picture. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I liked Munich a lot. I thought it was a very effective movie uh, for, for what it was. Kind of telling a really difficult story from multiple sides and really not tipping its hand in terms of making you root for one side or the other. I mean, that's I think that was the, the most effective thing about Munich is that it ends up making you understand in the end where you think obviously you're going to be rooting for one side but it ends up getting really messy and, and i think that's a, a mark of a good movie unlike yeah. uh you know movies in the 80s which clearly give you people to root for it and people to hate uh because <laughs> it was very much a this is this is how the world is and it's very messy so i appreciate that and i really like good night and good luck as well as far as as far as it goes but we'll get into this probably in subsequent episodes and in a bigger picture, probably down the road. But what do we think of when we think of best picture? And to me, I'm always kind of thinking of what picture represents a seminal moment in, in film, mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a movie that is moving in the moment, but you know, will have reverberations that kind of move further from where it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Brokeback Mountain is, is clearly that movie just kind of giving you something that we really haven't seen in a mainstream Hollywood movie before and ends up kind of opening the door for many good stories to kind of come down the road and allow these stories to be told. And maybe being first out of the gate, it was never going to win. But to me, it, it was really the movie that you probably think of most when you think of 2005, at least I do. So so I'm thinking of Brokeback Mountain. So that, that to me is kind of the criteria that I use. And, and so that's why I feel like to me, that would get
0: in my book. Yeah, that's a good pick. Uh, um, I kind of was on the fence between that and good night and good luck and just ended up picking good night and good luck just because, I mean, like I said, it feels kind of timely, maybe because I'm watching it now and there's so much turmoil and it felt very of the moment. So maybe I'm kind of seeing it through uh, a lens of today. But yeah, I just think it's an important story and really kind of at the beginning of television with... With investigation and and getting into sponsors and corporations, boy, do I love a movie where where somebody's inside a corporation and they go sort of rogue and and like
1: put the corporation on the line. And this certainly does that. And I will I will jump in and agree with you on this one part. That to me, the best thing about Good Night and Good Luck is that it covers a lot of ground. And you're right; it makes you think about the role of media and the role of corporations and sponsors. And how things are skewed in that way, especially in the in the early years of television, but still yeah. very much. Skewed. But the most important thing is that it does it in ninety minutes. It's so fast paced, yeah. Is is really really a, a miracle yep. in, in even now especially, but even then in two thousand five, uh, movies have continued to get longer, but they cut that movie to the bone, and it told a lot of stuff and didn't need a lot of time to do it, which is just a mark of a really effective movie. I don't think you need two, three hours to tell your story if you're really good at what you're doing. Yeah, and they gave you a lot of stuff to think about and, and painted a lot of pictures for you and did it in a short period of time, which which I think is is impressive and commendable, and more people should try to do it. I agree.
0: I, I mean, and Clooney knows, Clooney can direct, Clooney can write, Clooney can act. What can't this guy do?
1: I know we, we kind of hate him just a little bit.
0: So I think that's, that's it. it. Um, yeah. 2005. Pretty good year.
1: Yeah. To recap 2005, the year of George Clooney.
0: That's right. And Tom
1: McCarthy and William Hurt. And and the year that the Academy just was not quite ready to give an Oscar to a movie about gay cowboys. Right. But
0: very eager to give one to a poorly made over after school special.
1: Yes, that is true.
0: All right. Um so i think i hear the music and they're playing us out so thank you mike as always and uh we'll be back next week with
1: another year and some more oscars so long